to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 21st, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and though I may just be an old chunk of coal, you can bet your boots that I'm going to be a diamond one day. Ooh. Or a diamond darter, at least that is. <laughs> nice. That's our fish today. So yeah, as Guy mentioned, we're talking about the diamond darter. This is a little fish with a pretty neat story. And our guest is Stuart Welsh. Stuart's a research fishery biologist and assistant unit leader of the West Virginia Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit of USGS. He's also a professor of ichthyology at West Virginia University and a fish ID instructor at our National Conservation Training Center. So welcome, Stuart. Thank you. So when, when you discover a fish, you get to name it, right? That is correct. And you discovered this fish, correct? Yes. Well, you know, discovery can mean several things, but, you know, it was first found in West Virginia in the Elk River drainage in 1980. There were several specimens found through the years, and some geneticists had done some research on it to determine that it was quite unique. And so I came in to play by doing some morphologic analyses and then followed through by describing the species. Okay, so describing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Was there any indication? I know with some of these other species throughout the Southeast and the Appalachians, some of the early naturalists described sort of distinct forms before even geneticists were able to be involved. So were there any indications that this may have been its own species even before the geneticists got their hands on it? So I think so. I, I think that people that have, have looked at it in the past did find very distinct morphological characters to suggest that it was probably a different species. You know, previously it was considered to be the crystal darter, which is now currently its closest relative. It's quite distinct and and different from the crystal darter in many ways. And what inspired the name for this fish? Yes, the uh, the name is uh, Crystallaria syncata. The genus is Crystallaria. Syncata is uh, what people would refer to sometimes as a specific epithet, I use that name because it's uh, one of my colleagues, Dan Sincata, who worked on the Elk River for many years. He's a fish biologist for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources. And he worked with the Elk River as well as with the darter itself throughout his career. And um, I thought it was the right thing to do to recognize him in naming the species. So we've had one other darter on the show so far, and it was from the genus Ethiostoma, and that was one down in Georgia. I'm curious, now, darters in general, I feel, are one of these species that a lot of people who are sport fishermen or anything don't get to see all that often, but can you describe what this fish in general looks like and also what distinguishes the genus Crystallaria from some of the other more common darter genera? Uh, sure. Um, so there's uh, the darter group is very diverse. There's you know well over 200 species. It's a North American group. And um, depending on who you talk to, there's either four or five genera. A lot of darters are associated with a lot of bright pigments like red and blue and green. But the genera Crystallaria is quite unique. Crystal darter is uh, more of, a, I guess, a black and white type of darter. It doesn't have the bright pigmentation. But nonetheless, it's a very attractive fish. It's a small benthic fish. It has kind of an elongate body shape. The adults are about three to four inches in length, and the eyes are relatively large. Um, They're positioned quite high on the head, 
the body is mostly translucent, meaning that you can almost see right through the body. But it does have the ability to uh, display some pigments, but they're mostly just dark pigments, kind of olive to gray to black. Some of these pigments include, for example, dorsal saddles, which are pigment bands that cross over the back. And there's several of those. There's also a series of dashes that run along the midline of the side of this fish's body. There's also a dark blotch of pigment that occurs right in front of the eye. But the lower side of the fish and the underside is a very silvery white. And, and because of that is, is the reason why I, I named it the diamond darter, because during nighttime collections, when we would shine a light on this fish, it would, it would reflect and sparkle just like a diamond. Oh, that's cool. And we know that, I mean, you do a lot of work with Fish ID. You teach a course at our training center, and you just described a lot of the different markings. If you're getting into fish, what are some of the tips you have for folks who are looking at these smaller non-game fishes and just general tips for identification and how important it is to know how to do that? Yeah, there's a lot of tricks to the trade, so to speak. You know, it's good to have a general understanding of, you know, all the fishes that you are dealing with within a particular drainage where you're collecting. But, you know, if you don't have that background, ultimately what you end up doing is looking at the general body shape of the fish. There's a lot of counts that you can do, which are referred to as moristic characters, such as counting scales on the fish's body, counting uh, fin rays, you know, looking at pigmentation patterns. And so there's a lot of characters that you can see on the fish's body, you know, when you have the fish in hand that are quite useful for distinguishing, you know, one species from another. And it just takes a, you know, it's like anything that you do, it takes a little bit of practice. And, and once you get a feel for it, it's not so difficult, but, you know, it's one of those things where you have to just kind of wrap your head around the diversity that's out there and, and, and understand and often memorize a lot of these characters that you need to look for to differentiate one fish from another. I want to ask you real quick about those eyes that you mentioned. Now, that's something that when I look at the chrysalaria compared to the other genre of darters that really stands out to me, I'm wondering why do they have those? Is there a particular aspect of their lifestyle or life history, why they have it like that? Yeah, um, large eyes positioned high on the head are, are often associated with benthic fishes, but more specifically with um, fishes that are referred to as Samophilus. And that's, I, I expect a lot of your listeners are probably interested in, in word games and, and new words. And this may be a new one for some. Has mm -hmm. a new one to me. It's yeah. a word that begins with a, a silent P, Samophilus, and it's spelled um, P-S-A-M-M-O- P-H-I-L-O-U-S. Oh, man. That's like four wordles. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> just right. to get a wordle. <laughs> and it just means sand loving. And so it refers to uh, a fish that lives in the sand or is associated with sand. And a lot of Semophilus fishes do have larger eyes. And the diamond darter is a Semophilus fish that actually buries into the sand, which is quite an interesting behavior for a fish, I think. This is a total aside, but we have a we have a sand boa here at our house, one of our pets, and his eyes are on top of his head and they bury in the sand and just their eyes are sticking out. So that's a, yeah, that's a cool way to kind of get a feel for what an animal does in its lifestyle, like Guy mentioned, looking at the eyes, looking at the mouth, just those different characteristics of these fish and other species as well. Is this behavior, is it 
for camouflage to, to hide from predators or to maybe try and ambush maybe some larva or something that are crawling on the surface? Why, why do they choose to do this? Well, I suspect it's in part for predator avoidance. You know, I mentioned the dark dorsal saddles previously, and I think that relates to uh, concealment because it allows the uh, fish to kind of match its background on the stream bed. But in addition to that, you know, burying itself, its body into the sand would obviously also be a predator avoidance benefit because it could get away from a predator fairly easily by doing so. So these guys like sand and that's going to kind of restrict, I'm guessing, kind of where they are and what habitats they're in. Can you talk a little bit about the range of this fish? I understand it's pretty small and we just kind of want to get a feel for what kind of place it's living in. Yes, the historic range is the Ohio River drainage. Most of its previous populations have been extirpated. And so the only place it occurs right now that we know of is in the Elk River in West Virginia. Previous specimens are based on museum specimens. And I have to give a shout out to all the museum curators because it's such an important aspect of conservation, being able to have those museum specimens. A lot of the specimens of the diamond darter that are out there are from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that information really helped us understand the, uh, the range of the species, or at least what the range used to be. But as I mentioned, it as far as we know now, it is restricted just to one drainage, and that is the Elk River in West Virginia. And what's that river kind of like? Like, what does the whole habitat kind of look like in that drainage? The Elk River is one of our better watersheds in terms of habitat and water quality in West Virginia. The headwaters start up in the mountain regions of, of West Virginia, and there's not very much impact in the headwaters. And so it's got fairly good water quality and the habitat is quite good as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why the diamond darter still occurs in the Elk River. You know, the Elk River has uh, the highest diversity of fishes in West Virginia. It has over 100 species of fishes, including wow. including 21 species of darters. And I think that diversity is there because relative to other surrounding systems, it has little impact overall. I'm wondering what specific changes took place in the landscape between when those early samples were taken in the 1800s and today to kind of choke down this darter's range? Well, I think it would be somewhat speculation on my part, but I suspect that it's related to habitat quality and specifically related to sedimentation issues. You know, the diamond darter is very specific in its habitat use. I mentioned the sand but it's not just, uh, it doesn't just occur on large expanses of sand, but it's more in areas that have a mixture of sand, gravel, and cobble. But these areas where you find it are often, uh, the substrates are very loose, they're not embedded, they're not covered by silt, it's very clean swept type habitat. And I think a lot of river systems are highly impacted by sedimentation where the, the bottom substrates just kind of get blanketed or covered over by silt. And as you can imagine, the diamond darter, which relies on this very specific type of substrate and, and actually needs to bury its body into the sand often, it would have a very difficult time of doing that in areas that were embedded and covered in silt. So silt is just too fine and 
too densely packed for them to actually do anything with it. Is that right? Yeah, the silt just it kind of blankets the substrate, but it also gets into those spaces, those interstitial spaces between gravels and you know smaller substrates that would normally be quite loose. It gets in there and it just kind of compacts and it makes it very difficult for a fish like the diamond darter to use that habitat like it normally would. How do the darters in this system interact, if at all? I mean, you mentioned 20 species of darters. What's kind of the the relationship between these fish in the system? It's, uh, you know, when you have a diverse system like that, maybe they're using all the same habitat, but it'd be very difficult for that many species to just pack into the same types of habitat. And so what they end up doing is partitioning habitat, and they kind of have their own specific habitats that they use, and that may differ during different times of the year or during different flow or water levels, but they tend to be able to separate somewhat and use different habitats. And and by doing so, they're not in competition for the same places. What are some things people can do and what are some efforts, if any, that are happening in this area of West Virginia to do habitat restoration or maybe bring some of that diversity back to some of the other systems that have had changes over the years? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, it's very, it can be very challenging to work in really large watersheds because there's a lot of inputs on the landscape that can ultimately influence the water quality in the river. I think it just goes back to people being willing to have concern about the environment and, you know, are careful about what they do on the watershed because anything that happens on the landscape, as you know, land disturbances and so forth, the next time it rains, a lot of these things you know, basically it just washes into the river system. And so I think we just need to be sometimes more careful about what we do on the landscape in terms of, you know, thinking about keeping our rivers clean and avoiding uh, degradation of the, of the watershed. Yeah. And you mentioned sedimentation. And I mean, vegetation is a big player in terms of, yeah, how soil and other things enter into streams and rivers. Yes, that's very true. Um, you know, the area of vegetation along the sides of streams, which is often referred to as riparian vegetation, the, that acts as a very good filter. And so it's good to have. And, you know, a lot of times people will mow their grass right down to the stream or have open areas right next to the stream. And, and it's always better to have that riparian vegetation growing kind of like a buffer zone along the stream, which really is very useful in filtering out some of these inputs that would ultimately degrade the the water quality in the river system. Yeah. And a lot of people just kind of want to look at their stream, but there's a lot of cool stuff in the streams and rivers that we can be kind of looking at too, I guess. Probably pretty well camouflaged, but still some neat stuff in there. Yes, very much so. It's not every day that we get someone who's described a new species of fish on this show. And to many people who are naturalists who go out there, that's all, that's kind of like a holy grail, just a pinnacle of achievement to actually go out and say that you've described a species. I'm curious if you could describe that process, what it was like, what the work was like putting into it, and how that all came together. Well, it certainly is very rewarding work to do because, as you know, the species is kind of a common currency thing, whereas if you have a population of fish that doesn't really have a name on it, then it's very difficult to manage or conserve that population in any way. It almost needs to have that name for conservation purposes. Fish species have generally been described just based on morphology. 
you know, what the fish looks like, what the characteristics of the fish are, what you can see when you have it in hand, or perhaps looking under a microscope, what you can see. But genetics also is more recently playing an important part in um, species descriptions as well. But, you know, the process from my perspective with the morphology work is you have to first get specimens in hand and you need to be able to represent the range of the species as well as you can. And you need to be able to diagnose the species. You need to be able to describe the characters of the species that makes it different and unique from others. And so in doing that, then you also have to collect and have specimens on hand of close relatives that you can compare to, to, to be able to show that it is different and unique. And so it's a it's not a simple process. It's very uh, detailed and it takes a lot of time to collect all of this information. But in the end, it's, it's quite worth it. How many years of work did it take from start to finish uh, of you working on the species before you had that species name, that unique specific epithet in hand? Well, you know, it's uh, depending on what group you're working with and how many specimens that you have to deal with, it may take a year or longer to, to get the information that you need. And of course, you know, the publication process can be quite slow at times. And so what you do is you collect the data and then you have to write the manuscript and then, you know, you submit that for peer review. And um, that process can, can take, you know, a half a year or sometimes longer. And then it ultimately ends up getting published in the journal. At least you hope it does. And, uh, and so, the, you know, that whole process can take several years. You said that you named it the diamond dart because of the shimmer and the color that you would see when you were sampling for this. I was wondering if you could share any stories from the field about your experiences sampling this fish and seeing it out there, or at the very least, talk about what it's like to sample for this really cool fish. Sure. So initially, uh, the first specimen in West Virginia was caught with a, a boat electrofisher, which is a common technique for collecting fishes. We found that there were several individuals that were caught in these habitats that were a bit shallower and, and not easy for boat electrofishers to sample. So um, we started using seine nets. We were using 15 to 20 foot bag seines. And so these are pretty large nets that are stretched out between two braille poles. And so you have two people operating at one on each end, holding one of the poles. And then you're able to pull this net through the water. It has on the top, it has some floats on the bottom it has what's called a lead line that keeps it on the bottom. And you just drag this along the bottom and kind of scoop the fish up. It works effectively, but it's a tremendous amount of work uh, to pull a bag scene, especially if it has a small mesh size. And we were able to catch a few individuals here and there, but it was very difficult. And uh, one night we were out sampling and, and my graduate student, Crystal Rubel, was out sampling that night. And uh, we were just exhausted from pulling that bag scene. And so she kind of wandered off upstream with a, uh, with a flashlight or a spotlight and was looking around and, and it was real foggy that night. And I, I remember hearing her voice just kind of roll down out of the fog saying, I found one. And I was like, really, you found, you found one with a flashlight? And yeah, well, I found one. So we went up there and there it was. And so, hey, this may be a new technique. So we started looking for these fish with spotlights and we were able to find them quite frequently much more frequently than we did in the past. And in fact, in several nights of sampling, we found more diamond diters that had been found in the past 100 years using <laughs> the spotlight technique. And 
So just like that, a new sampling method was discovered. And, and since that time, that's the way we now find them. So once you spotlight them, then how do you actually go in there and get them? Do you use the same again? Do you dip nets or do you get a shocker in there or what's up? Yeah. So of course, their fish is now listed as a federally endangered species. Uh, it was listed in 2013 by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we no longer collect them in a net. But previous to that, we could collect them quite readily by using a small seine. So once you find them on the stream bed, you just take the seine and dip them up. And it's interesting that these fish are resting on the bottom of the stream and you can shine the light on them and they don't move. I, my speculation is that they probably think they're well camouflaged. And so the best thing to do is just to not move. Just stay there. Maybe, yeah. they, maybe it will pass, you know. And so they're relatively easy to catch once you find one. Yeah. So are they a nocturnal species? Is that why you're doing this at night? They are nocturnal. So what we think is that they bury into the sand during the day and then they come out at dark. So they're out from dusk to dawn foraging. They probably got like pretty open pickings at the nymph buffet there. They got, at least it's my understanding that generally these larval insects that live in the streams tend to, they disperse downstream more at night to avoid detection, but maybe the diamond dars got less competition for them. I think that's very true. Um, typically, when we find the diamond darters at night, there's very few fishes in the near vicinity, and they're just resting on the stream bottom in uh, moderate velocity areas where there would be good drift of aquatic insects coming downstream. And so I think they're just, they have very little competition there when they're, when they're feeding. They're out there partying all night. <laughs> Is there anything special about their eyes in that regard, feeding at night and seeing prey in terms of the size or anything? It could be, yes. Larger eyes certainly may help them see drifting, small drifting insects better than uh, smaller eyes would. It seems like we've covered the discovery and the describing of it pretty well in the biology. What else? What else are we missing, if anything? Yeah, um, well, there has been some uh, captive propagation efforts done. Two of my colleagues, Pat Rakes and J.R. Chute, they have a facility in Knoxville, a propagation facility called Conservation Fisheries. And then Crystal Rubel, who I mentioned previously, uh, is a hatchery manager there as well. And so they um, attempted to propagate diamond darters, and they were successful to a point. They were able to get the uh, larvae up to about 10 millimeters, you know, which is a little less than half an inch. They're very tiny. But then there was an issue in trying to determine what the larval diamond darters feed on. And uh, But what was interesting was these little small 10 millimeter larvae have really large teeth. And so that was uh, very unusual. Now, there are a few darter larvae that are known to have teeth, but this was extremely unusual and the teeth were quite large. I mean, you know, it's relative. We're talking about a 10 millimeter fish here with large teeth. But if you look at this under the microscope, you know, relative to the head size, the teeth are quite large. <laughs> so there was speculation then that these larval forms may be predators and perhaps they forage on other larval fishes. So that's, a, that's an area that needs some further research. And we're hoping to be able to get some more darters into their propagation facility soon to to be able to better understand not only how to propagate the fish, but also to learn a little bit more about the life history of this species and perhaps learn about what the larval fishes eat. 
I think that's really cool. People don't recognize you because you get this sort of saltatory development within fishes where you kind of just have these different stages and each stage is different. So just because you can keep an adult fish alive in an aquarium, just because you can get them to reproduce doesn't mean that you can propagate them. There's a lot that goes into it and you have to cater your environment and your feeding and everything to each of these different life stages along the line. And it's no easy task. So I have a lot of respect for them and the work they do. So we like to ask this question, Stuart, why should people care about this fish? This is a, a, a non-game fish, pretty rare. Why should people care? And what are, yeah, just some things you'd like to tell them to kind of wrap things up? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a tough question, I think, in turn, because there's quite a few different answers and, and there's some disagreement on what the best answer might be. But I think that there are many reasons why a small fish like the diamond darter is important. And I think one reason is in the area of biodiversity. I think it's very important that we try to preserve or conserve our, our diversity. We have all these fishes out there and it's kind of like part of, the, part of the puzzle, you know, the entire thing. And when you start removing pieces from it, you know, things can start falling apart. It's, it's, it's a big deal. And, you know, most people say, well, how can it be a big deal just to, to lose one species? But I think it can be a very big deal. And it's, I think it's important to try to, to not lose anything. Yeah, they're all so cool. Like this is so cool to learn about their teeth and the the shimmering at night. And it's just, that's it sounds like a really neat fish. So, yeah. yeah. You know, to go along with what you just said about wine sport, we had a woman on talking about Delta smelt, which is a similarly endangered species a few weeks back. And the way that she kind of framed it was, you know, you want to protect these fishes because it's, you have the same pressures that are affecting these kind of first fish to be threatened are going to be the same things that eventually affect all the other species. And so I think that's another way to think about on why it's important is there's the sedimentation, the water quality issues. Yeah, they're affecting the diamond darter now, but if you let this keep going, it's going to affect other fishes in the system eventually. And so may as well stop it now. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stuart. This has been a fascinating conversation and we've really enjoyed talking to you about this super cool fish. Yeah. Very nice to meet you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So we hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish, including the diamond darter. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 